And so reminding yourself making a good decision doesn't always produce a good feeling. And you can celebrate a good decision without feeling like it. We do lots of things without feeling like it. So if you wait till you feel like celebrating, it'll never happen. Because one, it feels stupid. And two, it feels like a total waste of time. And it's not, and it's not, but you don't have to feel like celebrating to celebrate. You don't have to feel like making sales calls to work on your business. You don't have to feel like, you know, working on your finances to get financially healthy. So you don't have to feel it to do it. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state. We scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket. Took a leap of faith. I took a chance. Now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests. Now let's bring Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, your host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. You're rocking with us on episode number 255, where today we are going to be talking and learning about how to get unstuck. Now, have you ever felt stuck in your life? I'm going to point out first and foremost, you are not alone. Many of us have been there, including myself. Feeling stuck is never something that we want to feel, but that's exactly why today we're diving into this topic. Whether it be in your relationship where you see patterns continuously repeating, whether it be in your career, business, finances, health journey, fitness journey, whatever it is, feeling stuck is a part of it. But how do we get out of that stuck feeling? How do we shift out of that? That is exactly what we're diving in today. And we are joined by an incredible soul, a vibrant soul, our friend, Britt Frank, a clinician, educator, and trauma specialist. She speaks and writes widely about the mental health myths that keep us stuck and stressed. Now, Britt received her BA from Duke University, shout out to the Blue Devils, and her MSW from the University of Kansas, where she later became an award-winning adjunct professor. She is a somatic experiencing practitioner and level three trained in the IFS therapeutic model. Britt was a primary therapist at a drug and alcohol treatment center and inpatient therapist at a children's psychiatric hospital and now owns a private practice. She's bringing all of her experiences, all of her education, all of her wisdom right here to each and every one of you that is tuned into Decoding Success. And we're so excited to have you here for this. I just want to point out some of the more in-depth details that we're diving into. Number one, we're going to be busting the myth on motivation. You might say, well, Matt, I don't feel motivated to get unstuck. Well, the truth is we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about making anxiety, something that can cripple a lot of us, including myself, making anxiety our superpower. All in all, the goal is to help you find your path forward with this episode. Now, to that point, you're hearing this come through your headphones, your car, however you're listening to this right now, but there's people in your life that also need to hear this. So I'm going to urge you to make sure that you're sharing it with those people. If you know someone that's feeling stuck and just really needs to get rejuvenated, this is the episode to send them. So make sure you're doing so. And without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Britt Frank. Britt, welcome to Decoding Success. Super excited to have you. Really excited to dive into this. There's a lot of interesting questions that I have based about this book. So I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So as the people that saw on YouTube, if you didn't see that, I was referring to The Science of Stuck, Brit's new book that's on its way out. My first question to you, out of like total random curiosity, is just like, why do people get stuck in the first place? Yeah. And my big disclaimer here is 
people get stuck for lots of reasons. And I am not talking about systemic oppression or war or geopolitical. I'm, I'm talking about like assuming you have your basic needs met, assuming you're in a safe enough environment. Nevertheless, you're stuck. So that's my disclaimer. Okay. So why do we get stuck? One, we don't know that we have brains and that the brains of ours live inside bodies that do things. And if we're not given accurate information, we're going to get stuck. Or we're going to stay stuck. And then the other reason isn't so shiny. It's because we get benefits from being stuck. There are payoffs to even the most crazy making behaviors. What are the benefits? So, and I'll use myself. I wouldn't presume to speak for anybody else, except I do. So I was a drug addict, right? Obviously that's a bad habit. Obviously it's illegal and I'm hurting myself and I'm hurting other people. Okay. So what's the benefit to being a drug addict? Pain avoidance. Long as I was addicted to a thing and never had to deal with my own crap, I was able to keep myself very, very far away from the things that I knew and the things that I had to do. So energy conservation, image preservation. Um, if you never start a business, you don't have to risk your money. Financial resources. There's a million reasons that we benefit to not doing what we want to do. And no shame. Let's just normalize it and talk about it. Because if we don't know the benefit to staying stuck, we're not going to get moving. Yeah, no, I get that. And in regards to the accurate information, is that information in regard to the information we tell ourselves, or the information that we get from outside sources? I'm just curious. That's a great question. And the answer is yes to all of the above. Um, what I'm speaking about specifically is the neuroscience. And most people don't realize, I didn't, that therapists don't need to be trained in the brain to become licensed. Like that is bananas. That would be like a doctor not having to know anatomy. So you can become fully operational as a psychotherapist and never once hear the term central nervous system or amygdala hijack or sympathetic overactivation. And all of these terms explain a lot of the ways we get stuck. But if you don't know that, you don't know that. So to become a therapist, why don't you need to know about the brain? That's so, that's so interesting. It is so horrifying in grad school when I'm like, wait a minute, where, where are our brain classes? Where are our neuroscience classes? The research, you know, is generally, it takes forever for the research to catch up with academia. And so largely the academic world is still teaching these very, very outdated models of change your mind, change your thoughts and change your life, which is fine. That's lovely. That's great. That works. But first and foremost, our brains are not wired for happiness or productivity they're wired to survive in the wild, to conserve energy, to keep these bodies moving, to scan the environment. And they don't teach that generally. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I've worked with two, well, three therapists going all the way back to when I was a kid and my parents were getting divorced, but not to like shine a negative light on my therapist, but I just feel like they didn't have that knowledge. It's so interesting to, you know, even think about that right now. And it's funny because when I read books like yours, when I read books like Dr. Nicola Perez or Dr. Ellen Vora, right, there's just so much brain knowledge. It's really interesting. So I definitely appreciate that perspective. But I talked about or you talked about why we get stuck in the first place. I'm curious, how do we get unstuck? So yeah, so okay, there's benefits to staying stuck. And there's not good information. Cool. Now that we know that what do we do? And people are very quick to minimize and invalidate the small moves. You know, we see on Instagram, like, this is what it looks like, you know, life goals. But every single thing starts with a tiny little step. And most people will not get started because starting isn't sexy. But starting does get you from stuck to go. And if your goal is to get from stuck to amazing life goals, you're never going to get moving. Because the path is you go from stuck to go. And then you go from go to momentum. And then from momentum to gains. And then you get to the awesome life. But we have to be able to be, you know, wow, 
little itty bitty teeny tiny atomic step forward and then celebrate the crap out of those little steps. Yeah, I mean, I'm someone that's born and raised in New York, so I like to move at a million and one miles a minute and like go super grandiose. So when Mm -hmm. it comes down to taking small steps, which is funny because the world has been pointing me in that direction over like the last year, it's like, dude, just be small, go small, go small. What's an example of a small step for the people that are listening? So, okay, let's say someone had a goal to get fit, right? And it's like, this seems, what I'm going to say sounds insane, but it works. If you have never worked out a day in your life, it is not a reasonable goal to go walk three miles. It is not a reasonable goal to walk one mile. It is not a reasonable goal to walk at all. It is a reasonable goal to go buy shoes, like just buy the damn shoes and then put the shoes by the door. And then the next day, put them on. But don't go outside. Just put them on. And then take them off and then do what you're going to do. And that seems, and again, I'm a New York dude. I'm like, no, I want to do the thing. But these tiny steps forward are better than big plans left undone. And grand lofty things that stay in our head. Like those little steps do get us moving. That So you broke it down into like the super micro. Like I wasn't even thinking that small. So that's that's really, really interesting. I was thinking, you know, when you brought up the perspective of, you know, wanting to shift and get, get fit, right? My thing was... The first thing I thought of was creating a plan as to how I would do that. Like, what's a workout plan? You're you're saying go get the shoes the next day, put them on. Like, literally, that small. And then, and this is like, people get so mad at me for this. Not only do you do something that ridiculously small, but literally celebrate your so like put your shoes by the door, and in the morning put them on, then take them off, then do a happy dance and celebrate. And this is not me being all woo and saccharine and touchy feely. It's like doing these rewards trains your brain. Oh, brain, dopamine, yay, do more of that thing. And so celebrating the small wins. Some people will do the small things, but then beat themselves up. Well, yeah, I put the shoes on, but it's not like I did the walk. It's like, great, you have just completely erased that game. Do the small thing, celebrate the small thing, watch how fast you get rolling. So I'm curious, right? When it comes down to the small win, and this is such a selfish selfish question here, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The small win doesn't always feel like a win if you're used to grandiose, right? So like you're talking about celebrating it, but there are many times I'll do something small and I, I know it's progress towards what I want, but on the inside, it doesn't feel like anything, you know, like it just feels like I'm numb to that. Like, what's your take about that? You're, well, my take is you're right. And your take, my take is, I mean, I smoked meth. I'm a really big fan of like, I want the big dopamine rush. I want all of the dopamine. So I get that. And not only does it not always feel good, sometimes making a step towards a positive change feels like crap. Like I remember when my diet stopped being Marlboro Lights and like Mountain Dew and I started eating vegetables, like I was going to die. It's like, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel good at all. And so reminding yourself making a good decision doesn't always produce a good feeling. And you can celebrate a good decision without feeling like it. We do lots of things without feeling like it. So if you wait till you feel like celebrating, It'll never happen because one, it feels stupid. And two, it feels like a total waste of time. And it's not, and it's not. But you don't have to feel like celebrating to celebrate. You don't have to feel like making sales calls to work on your business. You don't have to feel like, you know, working on your finances to get financially healthy. So you don't have to feel it to do it. That reinforces. So we had Mel Robbins on the show when she was coming out with the high five habit. And in preparation for that episode, I was in my bathroom getting literally about to hop on the call and I looked in the mirror and I high fived myself and I was like, this is so corny, but I smiled and I laughed. So like it was it was actually uncomfortable 
to do that, but it reinforces what you're saying. And it's really, it, it just has me in awe. It's it, I like how interesting that is. It's fascinating. And if you can get past the feeling like a jackass, which I do most of the time when I'm doing these things, like it's not pleasant and it feels silly. But if you remember, again, our bodies are not wired for happiness and looking cool. They're wired to keep us alive. And so if we know that our brain has a gas pedal, a brake pedal and an emergency brake, then we can drive. I mean, imagine getting into a car, not knowing how to drive, and then being like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why can't I do this? Like, well, you don't know how to drive. Our right. brains are the same way. Yeah. How much of being stuck is self-inflicted, right? And we, we kind of talked about that to an extent in regards to, like the benefits of it, but I'm just curious, right? Like th there was a moment, I, maybe it was this year, maybe, or, you know, a couple of years ago, whatever it was, where I really felt like I was stuck. At the end of the day, I couldn't tell if it was self-inflicted or not, right? And I'm still kind of unraveling the layers to, to really identify what it was. So I'm just curious, like, how much of it is, you know, just ourselves? Such a good question. And as an analytical, like trauma history, personally, like I want to deep dive into that question. But fortunately, you don't need to know why you're stuck to get moving. In fact, the number one question that will keep you stuck is a why question. Like you and I can sit here and I can give you insight into why this is happening and where it came from. And here's your family diagram. But like insight without action is just being stuck and smart about it. like you're smarter, but still stuck, you know, so don't ask why. If it's self-inflicted, if it's a response to the environment, it doesn't matter in the beginning. Eventually, it'll matter. But let's start not with why, but with, okay, great. What's your tiny micro step that you're going to take today? I don't care why you're stuck. What are you going to do about it today? And then tomorrow and then the next day. And then once you get moving, sort of like if you walked up to a burning building, you're not going to be like, I wonder why this building is on fire. And I wonder what the origin of this fire is. It's like, get the people out of the damn building and we'll figure out what happened and why later. So don't start with why. It's less about the root, more about the how. Root cause things do matter, but not as a starting place. And everyone wants to start with the why am I stuck? Does that change anything? It really does. Unless it's stuck for reasons outside your control. But, you know, self-inflicted reaction response doesn't matter. Forget why. Ask what? Ask how. So when does the why actually start to matter? So, and the reason I'm asking that is because I'm thinking, all right, cool, you know, we start taking those small action steps. We start building up momentum. We, we're getting the ball moving. But I'm starting to think, all right, that why matters because what happens if I fall back into the same habit or, you know, the same places to where I got stuck? Yeah. And so your question is like, when does the why start to be helpful? Once you get out of stuck and you're moving, then we can look at why. Like literally when your feet are cemented in place and your brain is spinning with unlived ideas and unlaunched businesses and unmet goals, that's not a good time for why. Once your feet are out of the cement and we've got you moving, then why is really helpful. Especially in like your dating life. If you keep dating the same person over and over, we can do a here's your plan and here's how. But eventually we're going to want to know why. What keeps someone dating the same person over and over if they keep getting the same result, right? And I, I mean, I haven't talked about relationships on this show in a long time, which is probably the hottest topic we ever talked about on the show. 250 plus episodes into this and people just rave about when we talk about relationships. But what keeps someone going back to the same type of partner over and over and over again? I did. Oh my gosh. You want to talk about toxic, dysfunctional, crazy making, breaking stuff, beating the crap. Like when they're done, that have the t-shirt. So people think the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting something different. And it's not. 
doing the same thing over and over, dating the same person over and over is called trauma repetition. We keep teeing up the same circumstance because our brain is trying to complete something that was incomplete. And that might be a parent-child dynamic. Yeah, like I thought I had daddy issues until I realized I had mommy issues. I mean, I've got both, but it was like, oh, wait a second, no. It's not that, it's that. And then I have generational trauma on both sides and a long history of mental illness. Like there's a lot of stuff, but we date the same person over and over because our brains are stuck on a trauma loop. That's so interesting. You mentioned, actually, I need to say sorry, because the way I really wanted to open this show was by giving you kudos for something that's in this book before you even start reading it. Absolutely love. And I want to ask you about it because I'm making an assumption here. But this part for little B. Now, I got the chills and the hair on my arm stood up when I read that. I'm curious, is that in reference to your younger self, your inner child? That is my inner child dedication to the book that's such a beautiful thing i could honestly tear up a little bit right now i thought it was like such i've never seen that before in a book i mean i've talked to countless amounts of authors and the fact that you mentioned you know mommy issues daddy issues and whatnot that you know kind of prompted the question in my head but why are you dedicating the book to your inner child so people are like you know who did you write that book for and i wish i was altruistic and nice enough to say i wanted to help everyone it was like the little version of me that was so lost and so confused and so so traumatized and so abused and lost in the world. You know, I do believe that we can cultivate relationships with every age we've ever been. We have that part inside of our psyche. It's infinite what we're capable of in our psyche. And so I wanted the little parts of me to know I've got them now. And this book is everything I know now. So we never have to go back there ever again. That's such a beautiful thing. I love that. When it comes down to working on our inner child, so one thing that I've been doing, I've been taking it super serious as of late. I set my phone background to a picture of me when I was a baby. Well, not a baby. I think this is when I was in second grade, however old you are then. And I've really been taking that seriously and I've been doing some journal prompts around that. I'm just curious, like where can someone start in regards to like understanding if their inner child needs to be, you know, worked on, if that's even the proper way to talk about it and how to do so. So a great question to ask yourself when you're triggered into whatever. If you're angry, if you're sad, if you're binge eating, if you're smoking, if you're drinking, it doesn't matter. Ask yourself, how old do I feel right now? I guarantee you, it will almost never be the case that you feel your chronological age when you're triggered. Holy shit. So you're saying to add, well, that, that's really difficult to do. Like in the moment of being triggered, it's tough. Oh, that's so hard. It's yeah. Hustle. All right. So you're saying if you're binge eating, ask yourself in the middle of that how old you are. Mm -hmm. With enough, I can tell how old I feel in a trigger moment by what I'm binging on. If I'm binging on ice cream, I'm at a different age regression than if I'm binging on pizza. And so again, it's a practice that you can cultivate, but assume if you are acting out in some sort of self-soothing behavior that's gone off the rails, that that's a younger part of you that needs help. And the question, how do I start to to do this work, let's start by acknowledging you have one. I work with a lot of very, very intelligent people that are like, oh, this inner child stuff is so just mad, so woo-woo. I'm like, great, but you're like a six-year-old when you're triggered who's having a major tantrum and that little dude needs some love and he needs some help. So we should probably take care of him. Yeah. What if someone that's listening to this doesn't necessarily have picture-perfect imagery of their childhood, right? And that's something that I'm learning about in a book that I'm currently reading. It's just, I look back on my childhood childhood and you know i can see myself in certain you know areas certain 
ages and whatnot, but I don't necessarily have like something for each age. I don't either. I have huge chunks of my childhood block. So what's great about our memories is there's two kinds. There's the kind where like I remember when I was six and this thing happened and there's like a story and an image, but our bodies tell the story of every single thing that's ever happened to us. So you can trace your story based on your habits and your compulsions and the things that trip your nervous system out. And it's pretty wild if you pay attention how much information your body will give you about your childhood. Yeah. You know, what's funny. As you were just saying that, I was systematizing the memories I have based off of grades in school. So I remember pre-K, I, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself on blast. On pre-K, I stole this little Mighty Ducks toy from, from someone in my class kindergarten I remember I would always walk up to this one girl who I thought was super pretty in my class it's interesting though you know I don't know you just sparked that out of me now I'm starting to get more memories based off of like certain instances so that's that's really cool and if you can't that's okay just you can go general do I feel like an infant do I feel like a toddler do I feel like a teenager generally speaking what made you want to do the work on your inner child well I didn't I spent many years avoiding my work and not dealing with my work one of the reasons I dated the same toxic person over and over is so I could focus on how if I could focus on how bad my partner is then I never have to deal with my own stuff because look how bad they are. And I mean, I found some pretty extreme people today. So I'm fine. I'm fine. Nothing to see here. Okay, so... Oh my God, it's me. Oh my God, I have things inside me that need addressing. And I did some you know, work with some not very good therapists. And then I found therapists who were skilled in both the brain and the inner child stuff. And then it was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Not ready. I'm going to go back to being in a Christian cult for a little bit. And then I'm going to go back to being a drug and sex addict for a little bit. And I'm going to try lots of different things. And then eventually I came to the end of myself. So I have to ask this question. This is something I've never asked on the show, but this might be the most important question I've ever asked. How do you find a therapist that specializes in the things you need specialized, right? And there, I'm even asking for myself because, I mean, it's super important. Like when I first started therapy in, in adulthood, which was in 2020 after, or I was kind of going through a very elongated breakup, I just kind of went with the first person and it ended up working out for, for a while, which was really good. I got lucky. But there's people out there that don't even know where to look like I had a buddy of mine he called me up the other day and he was like hey man and I was glad he asked I was actually really proud of him he was like how'd you find your therapist and I gave him my process and I'm lucky that I have resources that are on the show or people that I know that are therapists that I can ask but how does someone find someone that's for them specifically based off of what they want to work on and it's really it's like dating like finding a therapist you are very lucky that you got it right right out of the gate because that is very rare so the most important thing is does this person feel safe to you like let's just start with this is bad but the bar is pretty low are they trying to have sex with you or get drunk with you or be friends with you do they have poor boundaries if so run that's that's a good starting place so assuming that that's in order you know the most important thing is do you like them and do you feel like they like you you can have the most skillful therapist in the world, but if that relational connection doesn't feel safe or secure or intact, you're actually better off with a less skilled therapist that you feel seen by. And again, it also depends on what you're wanting. If you're just wanting to build skills, like I don't care about digging in my childhood. I just want to know some tactical, practical, what do I do? Then the relationship with the therapist doesn't matter. And so you can start by asking yourself, like, what is it that I want? Some people come to therapy not to build skills or to do work, but because legit, no one has ever listened to them a day in their damn lives. And there's value in having someone that you can talk to about your story. 
some people have told their story so many times, it's beyond not helpful. And they need a therapist who's going to say, actually, we don't need your story for this. The thing you're looking for isn't found in the story. So ask yourself, what is it that you're wanting and needing? That's so interesting. I love that. And I hope that people that are listening to this really take that into consideration. I think that's super important. So I appreciate you sharing that, Britt. But I want to ask you a question that I actually asked Ellen Vora, your friend. The subtitle of your book is Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward. I want to focus on the term your path. Do you think everyone is meant to be or meant to find their path? That's a really good question. I love Ellen Bora and I bet she had a brilliant answer for that. So do I think everyone is able to find their path? No, because life is really messed up and bad things happen and people impose their decisions and their will on other people, leaving them with no choices and no tools and no resources. Can everyone find their path? No. Does everyone have one? Yes. Left uninterrupted by the BS of life, could everyone find their path in a perfect world? Absolutely. That's so interesting. So you believe everyone has a path, but not everyone will find their path. Where is the disconnect? Like, what is the disconnect? Well, again, if you're like living in oppression, enslavement, you know, whatever is going on, abuse, suicide, severe mental illness, there's a lot of things that dizzy, chronic disease, there's a lot of things we can't control. So if someone is born and they die, and I, from a spiritual perspective, someone might say, well, you know, that was their time to play it. I don't get into that. But you know, I do think if we're given relative safety, access to the things that we need, connection with other people, life can be a lot less crappy than most of us live it walking around. Right? Yeah, I mean, the, the conversation with Ellen, it went down numerous different paths. And that was one one question I asked and it even led me to and I you know I guess this is a little bit spiritual but we were talking about being vegan and not vegan or you know just eating meat I should say and I said to her I was like listen I I don't want to be shamed for asking this question but who's to say that the animal you're eating that their path wasn't to feed you or their purpose wasn't to feed you you know so I'm just I'm just always curious about what people think about that but I definitely appreciate your perspective there I want to ask you something in regards to one of the chapters that I'm on in your book right now motivation being a myth why is motivation a myth so the myth is that there's such a thing as an unmotivated person. And again, I'm a New Yorker. I understand that people are not doing a lot of the things that they're supposed to do. And we make decisions that annihilate our lives. I'm not saying that we don't have problems. I am saying from a brain perspective, the brain is always motivated. It is either motivated consciously to make choices, to mobilize toward your dreams, to find your path, to do what you want to do, or your brain is motivated to survive a perceived or a real threat. It's never not motivated. So when people are like, oh my God, I'm feeling so unmotivated. I'm like, no, right now you're motivated by comfort because you're tired. Right now you're motivated by ease because you had a hard day. And so if we go with you're unmotivated, we're going to stay stuck because one, that's not accurate. And two, all that's going to do is produce shame. So it's not, am I unmotivated? It's we're always motivated. What are you motivated by? By ease, by comfort, by avoidance, by a larger goal, by an immediate gratification, by something in the future, you're always motivated. Can you shift what you're motivated by? Yes, absolutely. Thank goodness. And But in order to shift what you're motivated by, you need to name it. If I'm like, I don't want to go to the gym today because I'm more motivated. If I say I'm just so lazy, 
That's the end of the conversation. If I say, wow, I'm feeling more motivated by comfort right now. Now I can turn my logic switch back on and go, okay, well, yeah, I'm comfortable now. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm not going to feel good about myself and I'm not going to be able to make progress towards my goals. So even though it's going to be uncomfortable, I'm going to choose to be motivated by a longer term goal rather than the immediate comfort. But you can't have that conversation if you just call yourself unmotivated. Yeah, that's so powerful. Another thing that you had mentioned in the book, and this one, having a hard time buying into it, you mentioned that anxiety is a superpower. I will say that from my personal experience, anxiety cripples me at times. So how is it a superpower? Why is it a superpower? So I'm with you. Um, anxiety has crippled me. I've had lay on the floor praying for death panic. And I've had this wedding puking, you know, room is spinning, I'm going crazy and dying. At this. I'm not saying it's not miserable. But Who's to say that superpowers have to always feel good? And who's to say that superpowers are always going to be nice and yay and soft and sweet? Without anxiety, how are we going to know? Now, granted, we use our superpower in way too strong a force if you don't understand it. But without anxiety, how are we supposed to know if a relationship is off or if you know the job we're in isn't working out? Anxiety is the tech engine light of the brain's dashboard. So, you know, I could say the tech engine light is the superpower of the car. I don't like it when it comes on. It's like, crap, something's wrong. But the light's not the problem. The light's a signal pointing to a problem. And anxiety is not the, it's a problem, but it's not the problem. It's a signal pointing towards a problem. So does anxiety always tell us the truth though? Like for instance, no. if you're in a, it doesn't, okay. Oh no, 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 no. So the important thing to know is it's pointing towards either a real or a perceived threat. And a lot of times with trauma, our brain is constantly misperceiving threat, but that changes our intervention. We're not trying to make you not anxious. We're trying to make your brain access safety. Big difference. It's interesting. I mean, I, I have so many questions about anxiety because I understand that it can be super useful and it is a natural bodily response. But my thing is if all right, so I'm going to play a scenario here. If you're in a relationship and it's healthy, it's healthy, but it's pulling you out of your comfort zone. And the fact that it's pulling you out of your comfort zone into an area that may seem like it's dangerous because it's unknown to an extent, but it's not and anxiety gets triggered. Like, how do you navigate that? Like that, that seems like a weakness more than a superpower, you know? And I so get that. When I stopped dating toxic, abusive people, and I'm now married. And when I started dating my husband, who is a healthy, functional person, I was so anxious. I couldn't take it. I'm like, this is so normal and so healthy. Like somebody give me an attitude going to like cheat on me. I didn't know how to handle the normalcy. I spent many hours with my therapist being like, the normalcy of this relationship is driving me bananas. Like I cannot take it. But that's because my brain was motivated by the familiar. And even a toxic train wreck of a relationship, if it's familiar, is going to feel more comforting to your brain. So then it's not, why is my anxiety attacking me? It's okay, right now, my brain is motivated by the familiar, and it's perceiving this very unfamiliar, healthy relationship as dangerous because it's different. Then again, you turn your logic back on, and now we can work on tools to help. I had to do a lot of let's deactivate my body because it's constantly registering this person as a threat. 
not so much now, but in the first year of dating, oh my God. I'm like, oh my God, normal. I don't know what to do. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that there's light, right? I, I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a really encouraging sign. That's great to see. I'm curious if people pick up this book, The Science of Stuck, but they could only take one thing away from the book. What would you want that one thing to be? Oh, I love that question. The one thing I'd want people to take away from the book is you are not crazy. There is no such, and I'm a trauma clinician saying this, there's no such thing as a crazy person. It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. If you watch somebody walk into a spider web from across the room, it looks like they're just like losing it and going crazy. But if you get close enough, you're like, oh, it was a spider web. We're always fighting spider webs with our anxiety, with our depression, with our bipolar, with whatever the thing is. Everything makes sense up close. You are not crazy. I promise you, whatever weird thoughts are going across your mind, one, I have them too, and everyone does. But two, you're not crazy. How does someone not buy into their thoughts? Like, how, how do you adopt the mindset of you are not your thoughts? Especially when you're having, I, I just had this conversation with a buddy of mine, and he was saying that when he would drive to work when he had first started his job years ago, he would think that he was going to have a heart attack while driving because he was so stressed out and that no one would find him. And like, he just felt like he was going down a black hole. How do you not? buy into that because it's, it's really hard to say to ourselves well this is my brain why would my brain be talking about me like that it's like it's it's so weird so the funniest little hack that is actually it sounds weird but it's really helpful is not to fight the thought or try to gaslight yourself out of thinking what you're thinking but to say yeah, that could happen. Like I have that kind of anxiety driving over bridges still. Like I live in Kansas now. I left New York, moved to Kansas. So there's no bridges. But in New York, like, oh my God, this bridge is going to collapse and I'm going to die. Yeah, that could happen. If there's something settling about living in truth. You know, M. Scott Peck, an author I love, he said, mental health is a commitment to reality no matter what. So if you can tack on it, or if I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm the biggest imposter. I'm such a fraud. I'm such a terrible person. Yeah, there's a little bit of truth in that. So if you can validate either, yeah, that could happen, or there's a little truth in that. There's something very settling in doing that. That seems the complete opposite of settling though. <laughs> But like we all fight with our thoughts and that doesn't work. The other thing that can help is to separate. Think of your thoughts like a cast of characters, like the movie Inside Out. You know, like I have the version of me that's always yelling at me. I have the version of me that always wants to do drugs. I have the version of me that is a people pleaser. I have the version of me that's a manipulator. If you can think of your thoughts as separate people, then you can talk to them instead of feeling like, oh my God, it's just me. Like inside of you is an entire society of people. That's from the internal family systems model of therapy, Dr. Richard Schwartz. Yo, we, we actually had Dr. Frank Anderson on who- <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he's so great. IFS. That's right. He he had mentioned that a couple times on that episode. That's awesome. Now, what's the difference of IFS and the other modalities of therapy like CBT and whatnot? So CBT is just work with your thoughts. Like you have thoughts, they're not always right and change them and you'll feel better. I mean, I'm reducing it, but that's the gist. Internal family systems works with your thought and works with your body and works with your psyche as the cast of characters. I'm also trained as a somatic therapist and that's just working with the body. So CBT is just thinking. Somatic work is just body. I think we need a kind of a combo of everything. So when you say body, what, what does that mean body? So I've done EMDR, which I thought was really cool. You know, like I, I used the tappers that 
would buzz and vibrate and whatnot. But in regards to body, what what is there to do with the body? Oh my gosh, there's so much to do with the body. And EMDR is a great modality. And again, not every modality works for every person. So if that's not your thing, whatever. With somatic work, there's lots of things like pushing and pulling. I worked with someone who had assault trauma and we spent a session just pushing the furniture around my office. Now, does that magic the grief and the pain? And no, but Having your body experience being able to push, feeling your muscles engage, feeling those systems working can be really helpful. When I worked in drug treatment, first session with, I had like early 20 something guys, I just had them hold planks. I'm like, notice that you have a body. Say hello to your app. Say hello to your arm. Say hello to the fact that you live in a body. We're not going to even try to mess with your thoughts because your brain is on fire right now. But let's start small. Here is your body that belongs to you. What can we do with it today? That's so interesting. Is that why working out's therapeutic in a sense? Can be or dissociative. You know, like anything, working out could help you feel more connected to your body. It could also be a way to abuse your body and it could also be a way to leave your body. But exercise for me now is very much like this is a body that I live in and I get to move it, you know, which is fun. Yeah. I want to ask you something that I haven't asked in honestly God knows how long. You mentioned your past. You're super down to earth. So I, I need to get an answer here out of this. But I'm curious to learn what's a piece of advice that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but proved to be true over time? Oh, that's such a great question. A piece of advice that I didn't want to, there was lots of advice I didn't want to hear. But one that was really tough was you don't get to do childhood over. Like you have your inner child and you can take care of her and you can get to know your parts. But once you grow, you do not, you know, even if you reincarnate, if that's your belief system, you do not get in this iteration of you this time around. You don't get to go back. You got what you got. You didn't get what you didn't get. We can grieve it and it doesn't have to define you. But if you didn't get it, you didn't get it. I didn't like that. Why was that given to you? Why was that piece of advice given to you? Because I kept trying to date someone who would parent me. This time, maybe I'll be taken care of. This time, I want to be a princess. I'm a princess. I'm going to date someone who's going to make me a princess. It's like, no, actually, that's not a good goal for dating. I need to date grownups who will treat me like a grownup. And I had a hard time with that. That's so interesting. What's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Oh, that's a good question. The biggest myth of mental health. One, you're not crazy. There's no such thing. Two, there's no such thing as an unmotivated person. And three, mental health is not a mental process. It's a physical process and it shouldn't be called mental health. It's physiological. It's your nervous system. It's all of the things and ways your brain and body interacts with your environment. So mental health is physiological. So this is so interesting. This keeps popping up in my life, right? I'm reading Dr. Nicola Perra's book right now called How to Do the Work. And ever since I picked it up, everything I'm seeing, and maybe this is my reticular activating system or, or whatever it may be, everything I'm seeing and hearing has to do about regulating the nervous system. Hmm. And what you just said made me think of that. So like, how do you regulate your nervous system? Like, what, what does that look like? That's become such a buzzword. So I'm not surprised that you're seeing it everywhere, even though, of course, your reticular activating system is primed to look for it. But regulating your nervous system doesn't mean you stay calm and zen. And that's a big sort of myth. People are like, I have to be regulated. I have to be calm. Regulated doesn't mean calm. It doesn't mean happy. And it doesn't mean like I'm in this perfect blissed out state. Regulated means I am still in charge of my choices. 
So like I might be angry, but I'm not going to say or do the thing that I'm thinking. I may be sad, but I'm not going to go and do the thing that I would want to do to comfort myself. Regulation means you're in a window where choices are still available. How do you get to that state? What does that look like? Practice. It starts by realizing when I started, I had no window of tolerance. Like everything everything triggered me. Everything was like, oh my God, I'm in pain. Oh my God, reasonably. But we built out the window of tolerance by actually learning how to live in bodies. Like one thing I was never taught as a kid, I don't know if you were, was, hey, where in your body does it feel safe? Like, how do you know this person feels safe to your body? How do you know this person feels tricky to your body? Like we're not taught how to do it. But like anything, it's a skill and you can practice it and get really good. And soon it could be like, yep, I don't know why my nervous system doesn't like that person, but it doesn't. And I trust that. So the answer to your question, no, I I was never taught that. (laughs) Like, ever. (laughs) Super emphasis on never. No shame to my parents. They did the best they could do. But yeah, I mean, thinking about things like that, I I mean, I I feel like I'm so far off from what ideally I would like to be as a parent. But I guess that leads me to ask you, like being able to be so present with children in the sense that you just mentioned, like that itself just seems like such a daunting task. How do you become, I'm not a parent, but I'm just curious, like how do you even like deploy that level of parenthood? one of the main reasons I've chosen to be child-free. I have so much compassion for the very daunting job of parenthood. So I'm certainly not, and I had a play therapy practice. So I started my career working with kids, not because I know how to parent, but because I wanted to learn how do kids interpret things and how do kids see the world? Because knowing that's really useful. As a parent, the best thing you can do for your kid is work on yourself. Like I've seen memes about it. It's like my loving family said they would do anything to help me except work on their own crap, except go to family therapy. So the best thing you can do as a parent is work on yourself. Yeah, I I think, I mean, I would love a child. Like I would absolutely love a child, but the more and more I think about, and I don't have a child right now, so it's really not, it shouldn't even be a thought process, but I just think about it. I'm like, this is, it's a really big freaking task. And if you don't have the time, if you don't have the energy, if you don't have the bandwidth, the emotional availability, like there's just so many factors that go into being a healthy parent. And I would never want to have children just for the sake of having children and then let them experience what I experience. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And I'm with you and against why I've chosen not to. But I will say this for parents who are like, oh my, especially conscious parents that are trying really hard and they're aware of all the ways they're not perfect. Kids, and I know this from sitting for a decade as a children's therapist, kids don't need perfect parents and kids don't need to be protected from, like obviously from abuse, but kids don't need to be protected from every single injured feeling. Kids need parents that will help them through the things, not shield them from the things. So if you're a parent and you're like, I don't have the time, the bandwidth, the money, the resources to be this present, like, okay, be as present as you can. Kids don't need perfect. They need good enough. How do you need? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Britt. I didn't mean to cut you off. This is my rant because this is what I never got. Kids don't need perfect. They need good enough. See them when they're hurt. Do the best you can to name their pain instead of making their pain about you and they'll bounce back. How do you not shoot for perfect though, right? And it doesn't even need to be about parenting, just in general, because I'm thinking about it. Once you said that, I realized that's why I don't want, you know, or why I don't feel like I'm ready for children because I don't feel like I could be perfect. You know, that good enough factor, like, yeah, I mean, I can give it my all, but is my all right now good enough? I'm just curious, how do you not shoot for perfect? Well, I'm not a researcher, but all the research in this area has shown kids need good enough. They don't need perfect. 
So no, listen, if that's it, that's it. I definitely appreciate that. I'm going to ask you one last question before I do. So I'm going to let everyone know the science of stuff, science of stuff, stuff. The science of stuck is in the show notes of this episode, Brits, socials, websites, all of that good stuff in the show notes of this episode as well. But if you lived to whatever year you want to live, you write as many books, hop on as many podcasts, impact the lives of as many people as you want to impact, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. What would that advice be? Oh, that's a really good question. One piece of advice that I get to leave behind. One piece of advice that you get to leave behind. Exactly. Uncomfortable truth is always preferable to beautiful lies. Uncomfortable truth is always preferable to what? Beautiful lies. Beautiful, shiny, look how nice this is versus, wow, this is gritty and dirty and ugly, but it's real. I'll take that over the shiny, non-real. Even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. I love that. I love it. Britt, do you have anything else that we should make people aware of? (laughs) Well, that, you know... Social media actually has better information about some of the stuff we're talking about than I have seen in continuing education classes. And I taught at the university level. So don't dismiss social media as a very valid place. If you can't afford a therapist, if you can't afford to buy the books, there are really good resources online. So find someone that you trust and see who they follow and sort of cultivate a social media feed that's giving you good, helpful information that doesn't make you feel bad. I love that. Britt, thank you so much for this. Super excited to amplify it. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You have just tuned into the Decoding Success Podcast, episode number 255 with our friend Britt Frank, and you now know how to get unstuck. Being stuck is a part of life. It's going to happen from time to time, but getting unstuck is also a part of life. This episode just gave you the tools, the resources, the motivation, the knowledge, everything that you need to help yourself get unstuck. So shout out to our friend Britt Frank. You can check her out in the show notes where you can pick up her new book, The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forward, her socials, her websites, all of that good stuff. If you want to reach out, let her know that you heard her here on Decoding Success. To that point I mentioned earlier in this episode to make sure that you're sharing it because there's people in your life right now, whether you know it or not, that are stuck. So whether you share this on your Instagram story, whether it's directly via a text message on an email thread, even word of mouth the next time you're having an espresso martini at the bar, whatever it may be, make sure that you're sharing what you heard here because what you heard here could be beneficial to someone that is in your life. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.